Is he an expert on, ba- on badges? He said he studied badges for five years and then and he, he got... didn't know what they ate. Right. We're just like, how are these guys powered? I don't mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mash, mashed potato. <laughs> <laughs> That's a TV reference. <laughs> Hello, my name is Kirsty Styles, and welcome to the weekly economics podcast brought to you by the New Economics Foundation. This week, we have super special guests Dave Powell and Ollie Hayes from comedy podcast Sustainable here to talk to us about the government's environmental policy, both nationally and internationally, and how that is intrinsically linked with economics. When economic crisis hits, is the environment still a priority? I want us to be the greenest government ever. We're not going to save the planet by putting our country out of business. Uh, Is the green agenda more than just a fig leaf? The Earth's climate is now moving into uncharted territory. Science is telling us time is running out. Welcome to the climate change talks in Bonn. It is going to determine the quality of life of this century and beyond. And just over here, you can see a man who's been slightly overcome by the weariness of it all. There is a lot of rubbish out there, particularly in the world of the environment and politics. So hello, Dave and Ollie. Uh, Welcome to the weekly economics podcast. Uh, You normally do your own weekly podcast on the environment, Sustainable, where you talk about things like the great greenwashing that's done by um, businesses and companies. How does it feel to be podcast guests this time? It's lovely. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hello. I, I feel I feel amazing being here. This is wonderful. Thank you very much for having us. We're going to talk about uh, all of the egregious eco-guff and things like that. The stuff that uh, comes out of uh, this government and why it annoys us and why none of it makes sense. How's that? That sounds great. And to, uh, identify yourself, sir. Yes, I'm Dave. Hello. And I'm Ollie. Hello. Very good. Right. Okay. So you guys, um, as we said, talk about all things environmental, but we're going to focus on the UK government's environmental policies this week and how closely they're entwined with our economic future. So first of all, uh, this Conservative government was elected in May. Uh, What have they done on domestic environmental policies? Ollie? It's not been good. Uh, in in our opinion, it has been a little bit of a bonfire of green policies. Um, there, you know, when, before the election, when the manifestos came out, there was a certain amount of sort of dread and anticipation about what would happen um, in the event of a of a conservative led government. And then it's turned out much worse than that, to be honest. So they have deleted policies which would uh, help people insulate their homes and businesses. Gone. Uh, that's gone. Uh, they've banned onshore wind farms. Gone. Uh, they've cancelled subsidies for onshore wind farms. Gone. They've cancelled subsidies for big solar parks. Uh, they've cancelled subsidies for people putting solar panels on their roofs. Uh, they've changed the tax so that a Porsche pays the same road tax as a Prius. They've yeah. privatised the Green Investment Bank. Uh, what else have they done? What day is it? They've probably done something <laughs> else by now. <laughs> yeah. uh, oh, yes, and they've, they've taken away a little tax break that community energy schemes needed in order to thrive. And just because they could, they've gone, no, you can't have that anymore. I've taken that away as well. Okay, and the 5p bag tax, that was just a... Well, that was actually the previous lot. Uh, so well, that was, it the, was the, the, nice, was, the nice Mr. Yeah, Clegg. Yeah. Uh, so when we were saying to the Lib Dems ages ago, please do some really good stuff on the environment, they went, all right, 5p bag tax, um, which at the time we said, well, that's all right, but can you do something a bit more? 
Um, but it turns out that is literally the best thing that's happened on the environment in the last six months. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, so if we just focus on energy, um, what do you think the government is trying to achieve by making all of these cuts uh, for renewable energy like solar and winds and banning them from being on our shores? Well, it depends how you look at it, Kirsty, right? So the reason that we are given is that there's no money left and it costs too much to subsidise all this stuff and we've got a limited amount of money for renewables and we've overspent it, right? That's your, your basic reason. But that's not really what's going on. It's about politics. It's about something else. Wind turbines in particular, but renewable energy, is, it really is red meat to a certain part of the political landscape. It was in the Conservative manifesto that they would ban onshore wind. Um, and it plays really well. You, you know the outrage that you get about onshore wind farms and people getting really upset about it, even though the majority of people in this country are quite happy with it. So it's really playing to that kind of narrative. And the, what you have to understand about what's going on is everything happening on energy is coming from the Chancellor, coming from the Treasury. And it's all coming from this narrative of, oh, tough times call for tough measures. You know, I'd love to do this, but hey, we're all in it together. And so they're not buying, they just don't buy the fact that this is important and it needs to happen. It needs to happen Well, I, th I think that's the other element of it. For a long while, such, certainly on renewables, these policies were seen as, or rather these technologies were seen as nice to have, you know, little things on the side that weren't doing anything fundamental to the energy mix, um, but they made people feel better about, you know, fluffy environmental stuff. Actually, renewables have been far more successful, far more efficient and um, far more popular than anyone anticipated. And to an extent, they've become a victim of their own success. So they've chewed up a lot of policy money, of uh, subsidy money, sorry, because loads more of them have been put up. And so now you're seeing the government having to interact with them as a serious uh, kind of player. And they're scared and, of them. And they're scared of them yeah. because they've seen what's happened in Germany and other places where certainly decentralised renewables have really, really undermined the big utility model. And place, companies like RWE in Germany have effectively had to change their business model, become service companies. And they don't, you know, the utilities hold over government here has, has meant that they don't want to see that happening. Interesting. So will cutting these subsidies make my energy bills cheaper? Of course, that's the only thing that I've, uh, I, I'm here to find out. Hard-working hard <laughs> energy bill paying Kirsty. Um, well, it it's a bit of an arcane science anyway, estimating what's going to happen to your energy bills. The headline figure is everything they're doing, the whole scale slaughter of the renewables industry, the loss of 20,000 jobs, will save, what is it, a £6? Yeah, on, well, on, on solar, they're saying that on solar, uh, the, the, yeah. all the changes on solar will get £6 off your bill a year a year in five so years' what's time. what's that, 50p? I forgot what we were talking about, and I was like, they, they're going to save £6 from the deficit. That seems like a bit... <laughs> no. Well, you see, this is the thing. It's got nothing to do with the deficit. First thing to note, none of this has got anything to do with the deficit. None of the costs, really, for anything to do with renewables come off taxes. They're all coming off energy bills, right? Which is not anything to do with the deficit at all, apart from in a narrative sense of, you know, let's cut the deficit, let's cut spending, hard protecting hardworking taxpayers, blah de blah de blah right? But if this government was serious about cutting energy bills, there are some things it could do that it ain't doing, right? So it could insulate homes properly. We chuck away huge amounts of energy through our leaky walls and leaky ceilings and all that kind of thing. And they've got rid of, I don't know if you mentioned it, they've got rid of the only policies that we had to insulate homes, which were rubbish anyway, but they got rid of them mm. as well. They're gone. Um, or, you know, they could, uh, what else could they do? Well, that's the other thing. Renewable energy actually brings your bills down 
in the long run. Renewable energy is free once it's running. And that's what you've seen in Germany, is that because the more and more and more renewable energy you get, the cheaper a unit of energy for the grid becomes, right? Which is bad news for big fossil fuel plants, good news for bill payers, but you have to do quite a lot of it. So it's all just, it's, it's optics, it's messing around. It's, it's not really about bills at all. So, uh, but, but they are putting a figure on it in the sense that they're, they're saying six pounds off your energy bill. Yeah, and that's against a do-nothing scenario as well. So when we're talking about the feed-in tariff, which is the subsidy given to householders for putting panels on their roofs, essentially, everyone in the industry and everyone in the environment movement was saying, yeah, these subsidies should be tapered off nice and steadily in line with falling costs, um, eventually to a point where there is no subsidy. Because the point about renewables is that they have been massively successful in bringing costs down and getting to the place where in four or five years' time you're at this kind of magic grid parity place. What the government is saying is, assuming we never touch subsidies again and just left them as they are forever, uh, we would save £6 by taking these these draconian measures that they're proposing. So it's actually, the real saving is probably near a kind of 3 or £4. It's, but as Dave says, it's not really what it's all about. And, it, and it's all made up anyway. Like You can have some really, if you wade into the government's figures, I don't know if you know what impact assessments are and all of this hoo-ha. And, uh, what a lot of rubbish comes out in those, honestly. There's just there's, Take these economic models that model as Ole says, how the world might work under some theoretical thing. And then they take a policy change that they're going to do, which doesn't have anything built into it about the fact that, you know, you might get a dynamic industry overnight transforming economics. And then they just make up this figure and then they chuck it around like as if it means something. And the whole thing's just silly, if you want my opinion. So people often criticise the fossil, fossil fuel industry for getting subsidies from government. Why should the renewable energy sector be any different? Um, and if renewable energy is so good, why can't it make it on its own? <laughs> you're, you're, you're nodding at each We're other. Nodding there. at each other. Yeah. Right, two things. Right, uh, so listen. Right, two <laughs> things. No, uh, no, I'm being, I'm being Paxman. I don't obviously <laughs> believe this. Thing number one: uh, renewable energy hasn't been subsidised for very long. It, the amount of subsidy that it gets has come down and down and down and down and down as the costs of renewables has fallen. And we're nearly there. So the industry estimates that give it four or five years, and you won't need to subsidise it anymore. The point of subsidising renewable energy, the point of subsidising anything new, is to get it to the point where it can compete and it can take off and be dynamic and you get new technologies and loads of people installing it, right? And renewable energy is nearly there and now it's having the rug swept out from under it. Fossil fuels, on the other hand, have been getting subsidy, direct and indirect, for 100 years or more. We've built our entire economy around them. We've built our entire infrastructure around them. A report came out just last week saying that the UK subsidises £6 billion worth through tax breaks and overseas credits to get fossil fuels out of the ground. Globally, we subsidise 3.4 trillion worth of fossil fuels, which is mostly uh, from actually the fact that fossil fuels don't have to pay a carbon tax. They don't. That yeah. really reflects the damage that they do. Right? It's not a level playing field. So, if you're going to do, if you're going to moan on about renewable energy <laughs> subsidies, then they also need to make sure that fossil fuels aren't getting a leg up because they've had one for 100 years and they're still getting one. Or nuclear. Uh, so that's the other. That's the other real hobby horse of mine. So nuclear power. Um, the, the Hinkley Point C station, which um, we just kind of uh, rolled out the red carpet for the Chinese because they're paying for it. Um, and uh, this thing is going to be subsidised to the tune of, I think it's 92 quid a megawatt hour. Don't worry about that figure. That is double the wholesale price of electricity. And that figure starts when the plant starts, which even EDF say isn't going to be until 2026. And then it's guaranteed, index linked, for 35 years. So this 
nuclear power plant in Somerset, if it gets built on time, will still be raking in a, a huge and eye-watering subsidy in 2061 when Dave will be about 204 and I'll be 60-something. Yeah. Uh, we have on the show, we have um, Ol's six-year-old niece, Arabella, who comes on and reads out the most horrible bits of corporate flimflam. And, and it's quite, because it's quite funny hearing corporate flimflam read out by a six-year-old, right? And we worked out that she'd be 51 by the time that Hinkley stops getting subsidies. And imagine if, um, you know, imagine if uh, 35 years ago, we everyone was heavily subsidising fax machines because they thought that was the future and they were chucking huge amounts of money at it. And imagine we'd look at that now and we'd go, that is completely bonkers. And that's what it's going to be like. You know, technology is changing so fast. Like the cost of battery storage, the cost of renewables are changing so fast. By 2060, I really think we're going to look at something like Hinkley and go, what were we doing? doing paying all that money for all that time i just don't get the motivation like, I know, so so uh, 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 why the government when you whenever actually we talk about any of these economic issues i'm always like why they seem stupid has anybody told them this yeah well it's a it's a question we ask as well i mean you can sort of think through some fairly conspiratorial motives but then it's like but it doesn't make any sense why would you do it i think there is an element of a very sort of old school 20th century thinking when it comes to energy I really don't think that that people brought up on a diet of sort of 70s and 80s politics, which is what our current leaders were, believe in anything other than massive centralised power. The, the idea of, of you know innovation and, and smart grids and uh, essentially turning your house into a power station and all the rest of it just doesn't make any sense to them. So they're clinging on to what they know, which is build huge, big, cementy, steely uh, power stations. But... I mean, why they think it's okay to chuck the amount of money after it that they do. I don't Always know. comes back to willy waving. Always. It is, it is. Well, and that's why they like offshore wind farms. So that's the one bit of the renewable stuff they haven't touched is, is offshore wind. Now, offshore wind is more expensive than onshore wind. Um, I mean, I happen to think it's really important because you get a lot of electricity from it. These things are massive. Um, and the UK is a world leader in it. And that's the only bit of the renewables they haven't touched. But you look at that and you think, yeah, you can you can point at that and say, look at that massive wind farm I've built. Like, massive. Look at that great big wind farm. Yeah. 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 Look at the size of Glistening those turbines. in the yeah, North Sea. Yeah. Yeah. You can take a helicopter out to it and show your mates, which they do, you know. And, it's, and I think there's an element of that sort of macho. The other thing going on is security and this frame of security, right? They are terrified, rightly or wrongly, of the lights going out, right? And so this narrative, because there would be, you know, people on the streets and mayhem and protests and all that sort of stuff. And, and they think that renewable energy, I think, wrongly, will make the lights go out, or at least they're terrified of it. Or more specifically, they've had people who've been working in the civil service for 50 years telling them that the lights are going to go out. Because the, the way that they think about energy is just not kitted out for the idea that we would do it differently. I went to Germany a couple of years ago, and over there, you talk to any engineers, you talk to the grid over there, and you, you know Germany's got these really stretching targets for renewable energy, and you say to them, oh, this is a bit of a challenge isn't it? And they go, yes, well, it is okay. We will get it done because we are German, right? You come over here and everyone moans about it. It's just a mindset thing. Okay. And so um, while they're cutting uh, subsidies for solar and community energy projects, as well as changing the rules around them, uh, they're also encouraging fracking in the UK. Is that, um, and, and the story is about energy security and not having to get energy from elsewhere. Um, is that where that uh, fracking fits into this kind of story? Yeah, I think it does. That's certainly how they sell it. But again, this is another sort of red herring because even the fracking industry will, will tell you that it's going to be the middle of the next decade before you've got anything like a commercial scale fracking industry. So the idea in this country, that is. So the idea that this can somehow 
um, meet your security of supply needs, bridge this perceived gap is nonsense because it's not going to be around for another 10 years. Meanwhile, renewables, which can deploy really, really quickly, are getting artificially you know, held back and squashed down. But it's another kind of old school fossil fuel infrastructure thing, which they understand. They un- understand the idea of putting holes in the ground and, um, and having a fuel that you can sell again and again and again, whereas you can't do that with the wind. So moving on to the international stage, there's a big UN conference coming up about climate change called COP21, uh, starting at the end of the month in Paris. What's going to be going on there? Well, there'll be a lot of Red Bull uh, towards the end of the... the, the, You always get two weeks of like civilised talks and they're always like, yeah, we're going to finish on Saturday. And then on Saturday, they start the actual talks and it goes kind of way through the night. Lots of Red Bull, people who haven't slept for three days making terrible decisions about the most important thing. Um, in the planet. That is really how people hiding in cupboards so that they don't get chucked out of rooms. It all gets absolutely bizarre. Who, 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 which people? Who are these people? Well, usually campaigners, in fairness, because <laughs> by that stage, the, the negotiators will have got cross and tried to eject them. But it's a very important, it is a very important conference. Um, and essentially, they're looking to, to get to a stage where there is a legally binding deal on where the global community is going to go with emissions. We are going to, are we or are we not going to try and keep below this magic two degrees of warming threshold? Um, and that's what you know they're going to kind of try and thrash out. Okay, so what are the UK government going to be saying at those talks, given what we've uh, just talked about, uh, about what they're actually doing around the e- economics of energy uh, policies at home? Well, they're going to be talking tough. So just last week, uh, the Indian government and the UK government signed an agreement on climate change, which had a load, contained the word uncompromising. So we have an uncompromising commitment, said David Cameron, who's just overseeing the wholesale destruction of the wind and solar industry in the UK, an uncompromising commitment to uh, acting on climate change. Um, and in general, the international rhetoric coming out of this government is pretty strong. Like, you you know, they will always say a deal in Paris is essential. We think international action is important. We are committed to two degrees. And that's the reason that they excuse their relative inaction in the UK or what's been going on is they say, look, what we really need to do about climate change is get the USA and the EU and China and India and a few other people to pledge the right sort of action. And let's get that. And the more global agreement you have, the less less risk there is of impacting your domestic economy from doing stuff first and foremost. The Chancellor's on record as saying we're we're not going to save the planet by putting the UK out of business. That's the general mindset. So I think you'll hear some really tough talk. What it actually results in, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Okay. The the mechanism that they're they're using is a slightly weird one as well. So in, in previous iterations of these talks, your starting point has been, right, what does the science say is necessary in terms of Um, the level of of warming we're going to allow. And then you work backwards from that to say, right, well, what's each country's fair share of of emissions reduction in terms of meeting that target? And then, and what's their ability to meet, you know, how much money have they got? What's their historical responsibility? And you work it all backwards and you say, right, UK, you've got to do this and it's legally binding. That whole approach has been totally torn up and you now work from the bottom. So you've got these things called INDCs, which are intended nationally determined contributions. And it's, so in layman's terms, it's, okay, you as a country, say what you intend to do on emissions in your own borders, um, and we'll all do that, and we'll chuck it all into one pot, add it up, and see where we've got. And hopefully that'll be somewhere near two degrees. But it isn't. But it isn't. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's it's a very, very strange way of addressing the most pressing kind of 
problem of our time, arguably. Yeah, yeah. So, I, mean, I mean, so you kind of, I know that there's been hope around different cops and it's been sadness afterwards. Um, are you hoping for a legally binding target this time based on this new wacky measure? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 hope is a horrible, hope, horrible uh, thing, isn't hope, it? <laughs> no one ever got anywhere by hoping for anything. <laughs> I think two things are going to happen, right? Firstly, I think that it's going to be a bit of a rubbish outcome. Uh, so we aren't going to come out of it and go, woohoo, it was fantastic. And the critical thing, the important thing with that, Copenhagen uh, six years ago was the last big one of these mahusive climate shindigs that we had. And everything was pointed at it. Everyone was told, this is the talk. This is the moment. This is what we, you know, we must sort it out here. And when we didn't, there was a sort of audible deflation of energy. And it took ages to get that back in the movement. And then, you know, it, it, people talking about the environment and in politics. And, and it is back now. And the real key is to say, look, we already know that Paris isn't going to do everything we need it to do. It's hopefully going to be a big step in the right direction. There'll be a deal of some sort to some sort of level of commitment that may or may not be right. All right, but the next thing is to take that energy and say, okay, it's January. What's happening now? What's happening in February? Tap into that what's happening with the divestment movement, all of the energy going on in climate at the moment and keep it going. Don't see this as where it stops, but where it starts. Okay, so what can we, the people, do about this at at COP and, and beyond? Well, I think what building what Dave was just saying, the really exciting stuff is what's happening outside of the kind of forum of, the, of these official talks. So these growing movements to effectively keep it in the ground. And we've just seen uh, last week this amazing announcement in America where the Keystone XL pipeline uh, has been turned down by the, by the president. And uh, that was described, we were talking to, or Dave rather was talking to um, an American climate campaigner about it who's been working on it for seven years. And he said it was totally inevitable. There was never going to be stopped, this thing. But through a huge kind of grassroots mobilisation of uh, affected people up and down the, the, right, the, the, the route of the pipeline and kind of international efforts as well, it's actually been stopped. And that's the, the, the stuff where people getting involved is really beginning to make a difference. Divestment in the UK is really taking off the university movement, um, people getting their pensions out of fossil fuels, all the rest of it. So in a sense, doing this, it's more old school in a way. It's, it's getting involved in very sort of um, simple, direct movements uh, to stop the bad stuff happening where you live and, and in communities that you care about, rather than relying too much on our leaders and men in suits, basically, to sort it out. Yeah, you can move your money as well, can't you? RBS is the biggest investor in the nuclear industry, yeah. is that right? Yeah, and there's so much that people can do. The money, to me, everything is about moving the money. Everything, ultimately, what we are trying to do on climate change is stop money going into bad stuff and get it going into good stuff. And all of the campaigning is about moving the politics, which is basically about moving the money, which is why things like fracking are so frustrating, because it's the government saying, put your money into a fossil fuel, right? But everyone's money is their own. If you've got a bank account, you can move it. If you're or pension fund is investing in bad stuff, you can ask it not to. All of this is about shifting the money, and that's the energy we need to carry on. Yeah, um, and I, you can also move your feet, though, Dave. I can't. Uh, <laughs> by, there's a very, very important <laughs> thing that people can do, which is join a huge march, the job, uh, the March for Climate, Justice and Jobs, which is on the 29th of November in London, but it's happening in cities across the UK and uh, globally as well. And we are hoping that will be the biggest um, climate demonstration 
ever in the UK. Um, we've had some really big ones um, uh, organised at short notice in recent months. Um, last year, there was a very large one in September. So there is appetite there and everyone's getting involved. They're becoming more and more diverse. Um, the climate movement is looking a lot more like the society it seeks to represent, uh, although it has a long way to go. And it's a very exciting way that people can get involved. Wonderful. Well, um, it, it brings, uh, this is my favourite topic. So um, thank you very much, guys, for coming and uh, giving us some some hope. Not hope. <laughs> we, it's what we try to, it's why we set the podcast up in the first place, because everything about the environment can really get you down. And firstly, there's not enough jokes about it, right? You've got to find some humour in the darkness. You've got to find, so we try to do that, but also to make sense of all of this stuff a bit and to admit that it's complicated and sometimes really boring and to say that's all right, you know? So um, it's okay sometimes to say this is all a bit much, but it isn't and stuff is happening. And when you actually sit back and look at it, there is an awful lot to be cheerful about at the moment. I was expecting you to make a joke then and you didn't. Sorry, that's L- the thing. Lol, good one. Yeah. Good one, Dave. Thank you. If people have enjoyed uh, hearing Dave and Ollie speaking about uh, the environment and would like to hear more of it, you can get Sustainable. Guys, want to hand over to you? Yeah, well, you can get it on all your usual podcasty platforms like iTunes and all the other ones, the, ki- the, the cool new hip podcasting platforms we don't know about yet. Uh, you can follow us at The Babble Wagon on Twitter or our website is www.sustainababble.fish. It is. Dave yes. and we're on Facebook yeah just search for Sustainable on Facebook wonderful well, thank you very much guys it's been an absolute pleasure oh no really it has <laughs> thank you Kirstie <laughs> <laughs>